Thank you, uh, worship team. That was fantastic. Can we just maybe give them, uh, yeah, just a clap and just a, a welcoming amen there, eh? Like, awesome job, right? Um, and uh, it's really fantastic to gather again with all of you this morning. Um, I see a couple of new faces this morning. If you are new with us here in person, it is fantastic to have you with us. We have been uh, meeting together the whole of July in person and, of course, also still doing our online services. Sorry, I just need to start my timer here. Uh, I have a goal and an objective here today uh, with regards to timing. So, yeah, I just want to start that off. Thanks, Glenn. And, yeah, we just want to say a very warm welcome. If you are brand new with us uh, online, uh, please make yourself known uh, to our Connect team through the online chat function. Uh, if you are new with us here in person today, we would love to get to meet you afterwards, uh, find out who you are, where you're from, are you just visiting, or are you uh, with us here in Squamish to stay? Uh, for those of you that do not know me, my name is Rudy. I am currently in the role of associate pastor here at the Rock Church Squamish. And uh, yeah, it's really fantastic to be able to be uh, here to, to preach God's word to us this morning. Now, uh, we're going to jump straight into what we have or what I feel God has for us as a church family. Um, for those of you that have not been with us or, or you've maybe not been following our uh, sermon series. We are currently in a series and finishing up with it here uh, by the end of August, early September. Uh, the series is titled uh, Knowing Jesus and looking specifically at parables, looking at teachings of Jesus as we are, as a church, all about Jesus. We believe that the best way to love people, the best way for us to love Squamish is to share Jesus Christ with people, to share Him, to show them who He is, and to share with them what He has done for them in order that they might be able to come close and come, come, sorry, come into a relationship, come to know God uh, through their faith in Jesus. And that is what we have focused on. We have focused on looking at Jesus' teachings for us as a church, so that we can be sanctified and to grow more in relationship with Him, becoming more and more like Him, and to be holy uh, by His Spirit, not by our own doing, not out of our own works. Because as, uh, as Nick had shared there, we fall short of God's glory on many occasions, um, every day, <laughs> and we need His grace. Uh, I was reminded just of... Uh, Something I read again this week, I believe it was out of John 8, where Jesus talks to uh, the Pharisees and he tells them, listen, anyone who sins is a slave to sin, uh, but whoever the Son sets free is free indeed. And, and that is what Jesus came to do, and he has come to set us free from enslavement. So I'm trusting that today is going to be a day that God is going to uh, break chains off of people's lives, off of their feet and hands, and metaphorically speaking, break them out of jail and to set you free. Because that is what Jesus' mission is. He wants to set the captives free. That is what he came to do. And that is what we are all about. So um, for that purpose, I want us to turn to the Gospel of John, 
chapter 2. So if you have your Bible with you, uh, please turn there or on your Bible app. We're in the Gospel of John. It is the, the fourth Gospel um, in the New Testament, the fourth book in the New Testament. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we are going to look at a passage that I believe many times can be perplexing to us because um, in our culture, of course, and within the church, we have various perceptions being created about Jesus. And so we seldomly look at Jesus in this kind of way uh, and, and, and in his ministry that we're going to read about here today. So let's have a look at it. John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. Verses 13 to 22. And I'm going to read to us from the NIV, New International Version. It says there, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables, exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords. He drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house. Into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this, raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Let's just pray together before we dive in. Our Father, we just thank you. Uh, for this morning, we thank you for your word. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. That is truth. Thank you that we can be sanctified by the truth. So I come and ask, Holy Spirit, come and sanctify us. Lead us and show us uh, what you want us to hear. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, message title this morning is the need for love. And what I'm hoping to show us and what I, I felt God press on my heart through this uh, scripture is one overarching point. It's going to be one main point that I'm making, but it's going to flow in threes. Firstly, I'm going to show you a needs-driven ministry leads to a consumption-driven religion resulting in worship that is void of love. A needs-driven ministry leads to consumption-driven religion 
resulting in worship void of love. Our text is out of the Gospel of John. And I thought I'd just briefly talk a little bit about the purpose of this gospel. If, uh, if you look at the Bible, the overarching picture of the Bible and the story of the Bible is it's only one story. It's the story of God and His people and how God had a plan from start to finish to redeem mankind from their sin through one person, through Jesus Christ. Now, we have in the New Testament four Gospels, as I had mentioned. And, and the word Gospel means good news. It literally, specifically means, and, it, and it's good news that a messenger or a herald would bring. And it related to a message that was about the ruler or king. And so the four Gospels is basically four accounts that God gave us through the power of the Holy Spirit, through four different authors, to show us who that king is. What is the good message about this king? What is it that he came to do? Now, every gospel has a purpose. Every gospel is written to a specific audience. Every gospel has got an emphasis on certain parts. Now, Matthew focuses on showing us Jesus as the king of kings and lord of lords. He is the Jewish Messiah. He starts off with a lineage that, that traces Jesus back to Abraham, to whom the promise was made that through you all nations will be blessed. And we see Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. Because Jesus is then the one through whom all nations are blessed. The Gospel of Mark looks at Jesus' life as a servant. So he is king, but he is also servant. And he looks at it's, it's an action-packed gospel. It's from start to finish how Jesus serves people. He heals the sick, makes the blind see, cleanses lepers. And Jesus himself says in the gospel of Mark, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. The gospel of Luke focuses on Jesus' humanity. That he was, even though he was king and servant, he was 100% man. But yet he never sinned. And then we have the Gospel of John, out of which we are reading here today. And the, the purpose of John is to show that Jesus is himself God. That Jesus is God incarnate. He is Emmanuel. Now many people say, well, Jesus never said that he was God in the Gospels. They doesn't say that Jesus was God. Well, John, at the very beginning of the Gospel of John, says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through without him nothing was made that has been made. He's talking about Jesus. And he goes on to describe the ministry of Jesus, and Jesus being the light of men. Now, what's really interesting and why I'm sharing this with you is we got to understand then, John has a purpose of communicating this from the start. Jesus is God. And it gets affirmed by John the Baptist in chapter 1. And then it moves to chapter 2. At the start of chapter 2, you have got an interesting picture. You have got Jesus at a wedding banquet, the wedding in Cana. And he's got his disciples there that he had chosen. 
And here is this massive party that happens. And Jesus communicates through John that the kingdom of God that is coming is like a wedding banquet. But this wedding banquet and this situation in John 2 is interesting is they run out of wine, right? And so Jesus performs this miracle of taking water and creating the best wine ever. I don't know if there are any wine drinkers here, but I, I love a, a good glass of wine, South African Shiraz. I wonder one day if I'm going to be, you know, tasting that wine that Jesus made. If it's, I'm pretty sure it's going to be better than the best South African Shiraz. But Jesus does that, indicating that the new covenant is going to be the fulfillment and the fruition of Jesus' promise out of the Old Testament from long ago that he was going to do a new thing. He was going to send his spirit. He was going to pour out his spirit on all flesh like new wine. New wine and new wineskins. But it's not going to fit into the paradigm. It's not going to fit into the religious system of the Jews. And of course, we see that fulfilled in the book of Acts. It's for me amazing to see that that picture of this wedding feast happens in the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit is poured out. And the people that see these disciples and these other nations that are filled with the Holy Spirit, they actually make the comparison to wine. They said, listen, these people, have they been drinking too much wine? To which Peter tells them, listen, no, it's too early. They're not drunk. So their behavior looked like, man, what something is going on here. This is weird. Okay? But that is the picture that John gives us. And then we see right after this wedding feast something that seems to be very contrasting. Jesus traveling up to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And we've got agro Jesus, right? Like we have got Jesus that turns to, yes, violence. It's violence. Okay? Physical violence. What on earth is going on? What is John trying to tell us here? We have on the, at the beginning, I like that Jesus. He wants us to have a party. Let's drink the best wine ever. Let's go all night. Seven days. That's what a wedding feast was. Seven days. They were partying. And then, it's the Passover festival and Jesus is, is he suffering from a hangover? Why is he so grumpy? But for us to understand this, this situation, we have to go and have a look at the context of that setting and why Jesus is so upset. And what that means for us as his people today. The first point, a needs-driven driven ministry Let's just throw up verses 13 to 14 again there. And have a look at this needs-driven ministry. It says, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple courts, He found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Now, Jesus travels, of course, to Jerusalem for this Passover because he is keeping, of course, the requirements of God out of the Old Testament that required Israelites had to go and celebrate the Passover. 
But we quickly read that and we, we see, okay, Jesus is in the temple court, who is at the temple. And, and we many times, I said it before in a message, we don't understand what the temple setup was like and what the complex was like. So for us to understand what's happening here, I'm quickly going to throw up this next image of the temple complex. Okay. Of the temple complex there. Um, I don't have my laser here, but in the middle, you see there that there is the actual temple, which looks like a, a T-shape. Okay, that's upside down. That's the actual temple, Herod's temple, that was constructed 46 years before this time now. Now, it was Herod the Great that made huge improvements. He, he made it the best thing ever after Solomon had constructed the initial second temple. Okay? But around that temple building, you've got different rooms that have got different purposes, storing of valuable treasures and gathering of people, and there's, there's different functions. And within the temple, that T-shaped building, of course, you've got two areas. You've got the holy place, which is in the beginning, and then you have a veil, and behind the veil is the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is. And the high priest would go into that place only once a year, at the Day of Atonement, to make atonement for the sins of the people. But just at the bottom of that center part, you have got two areas there. And the furthest area is the Gentile court, or court of the Gentiles. And what that court was, is it was an area to which the Gentiles, or those Jews that were traveling from thousands and thousands of miles, outside of Israel, because they were scattered through the Babylonian exile and Persian exile, they were then allowed, um, they were of course sharing the gospel message, the, the message that God had saved them and brought them out of Egypt, the Passover message. And many of those Gentiles would then be invited to come and have a look and have a listen at what happens here at this temple complex. So in the courts of the Gentiles, those people could come close and near to God. They could hear God's word being read and taught. And put their faith in the God of the Bible. Now that's the court in which most probably this is taking place. John is the only gospel that gives us the story where Jesus starts off his ministry in this fashion. The other three gospels give us a later account when he closes off his ministry by entering into Jerusalem as the king. And then he also goes into the temple courts and he clears the temple. Now this is at the start of his ministry. And the question is, why is this an issue? What is happening here? What do I mean by saying that there is a needs-driven ministry happening here? Well, it's about what Jesus finds. What does he find? Finds people selling cattle, sheep, doves and pigeons, forex traders, exchanging money. Sounds like chaos. You see, what was supposed to happen in these court areas was there was supposed to be prayer, reading of scripture. Not trading. But what had happened 
was because of the fact that so many people were traveling yearly from Egypt, from Arabia, Mesopotamia, other parts of the world, there was an opportunity because there was a need. All of these people would have to travel thousands upon thousands of miles. And, and what would they have to then bring with them for the Passover? Cattle, sheep. The poor would have to bring doves, pigeons, if they could not afford sheep or oxen. And they would have to travel with their families over very dangerous territory. Wild animals, lions, robbers, thugs, waiting to pounce on families, waiting to pounce on people. And so, there was a need. There was a need to create something that could make it more convenient for people to come. Come to the temple complex. We've got everything ready for you. There's oxen, there's sheep, there's doves. You can buy it. Even if you don't have the right currency, you can exchange it. Because there's a need. It's very similar to how we go to our places of worship called the Rogers Arena or the Seattle Seahawks. I don't know what you call that stadium. If you go to those stadiums, it's the same kind of vibe. There's a smell in there. There's food cooking. You don't have to bring anything. And in fact, they don't even allow you nowadays. You can't bring your own food in there. You can't take your own alcohol. You need to buy everything there because there's a need. And so what happened? Religious authorities started seeing this opportunity because there's a need. Let us help the people. It's legit. Okay? It is dangerous. Now, is that, what, is that what's ticking Jesus off? Is that what is the, the issue for him? Well... I think we, we see now in the next part what is this issue, what this is creating. Because the second point is that the needs-driven ministry leads then to a consumption-driven religion. And I think this is where we get Jesus' aggravating tone and why. Let's look at verses 15 to 16. So he made whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. So you see they, and when I say they, the religious authorities, they were trying to fulfill this need. It made it more convenient for those who were traveling these thousands and thousands of miles. If they allowed vendors into the courts of the Gentiles and then allow a trading place so that it's a win-win situation. Vendors are making money, but the religious authorities are also making money to upkeep their religion. To upkeep this building, this facility. And what was happening is, the more and more over years this is occurring, 
The less is required of the people who need to travel to come and worship Yahweh. They can just pitch up. Not having to prepare, not having to go through the dangers of traveling for thousands and thousands of miles with your stock and with your, your valuable sacrifices that you were going to offer for the Passover. And it was costing them a lot of money. Because we all know, of course, if you go to a music concert, if you go to a Canucks game to go and worship there, it's costing you a lot of money. The tickets that you have to buy, the food, the drink. And then what's most disappointing is the food. It's really terrible sometimes. I remember I went to a, a Springbok rugby game. I'm a rugby guy from South Africa. I was living in England. I traveled for a weekend to Ireland. I spent a lot of money traveling with a bunch of guys on a bus, drove there all the way, and now it's the excitement, walking up to the stadium, and I smell food, and I spend, I don't know, like double, maybe triple the price that I would normally pay for a hot dog. It was the worst thing I ever ate. It was terrible. And so what was happening here is people, worshipers, are coming to bring sacrifices to Yahweh, but they're doing it out of convenience. It's very convenient. I'm not bringing my best animals. I'm keeping them at home. It's okay. At the temple complex, I can buy oxen, sheep, doves and pigeons. It doesn't matter. Like even if the pigeons are not the greatest, maybe some of them are maybe one-eyed or you know, some lambs are maybe looking a little bit blemished. So it's convenient. And so what is the big deal? Jesus says, stop making my father's house a place of trade. He is not predominantly concerned about the building. He's not concerned about the historicity of it or the value of it or how beautiful it is. He's concerned about the people. Stop making my father's house where my people gather and where my presence is. Stop making it a place where you're buying and selling. Because it's not touching people's hearts. Their hearts are in the wrong place. Jesus makes a whip. And what that word in Greek is, is a phragelion. And it is a scourge. It is a whip that is a punishment tool. It's not just some little wooden spoon to give them a spanking and be like, hey, it's, you know, stop being naughty. Okay? Jesus is upset. He's driving everyone out, not just the animals. He's making a big statement here. But he draws his attention to those selling the doves, the pigeons. Because that is connected to the poor. Jesus is upset because the poor are suffering under this as well. There are many poor people. They have been given the... Um, God made it possible for them that if they did not or could not afford expensive animals, lamb oxen that they could sacrifice 
doves and pigeons. And so it's interesting how it specifically turns to the vendors that sell these doves and pigeons. And he says, get them out of here. And you can just imagine the shock on these people's faces. You know, I looked at a video the other day that there was a guy that thought, he said he was God in Australia. He was protesting at a public gathering where they were talking about COVID. And the people's reaction to his statements and how he was getting all aggressive, you know, immediately they thought he was crazy, so they took him away. You can just imagine how they were thinking Jesus is totally out of his mind. They, of course, accused him of being demon-possessed. And so Jesus goes round and in this chaos, drives them out, turns over the money, changes tables, coins on the floor. Is this the same Jesus? Is this the Messiah? Is this the, the guy that's gone round to heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead? This is the guy? He says he is God himself and this is what he comes to do to our religion? So Jesus is quite violent because it's about what it's doing to people. And so that, I believe, leads then to worship that is void of love. You see, the, the Jews immediately respond in a self-righteous way. Those that are there. It says the Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove you're doing this out of authority? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple that he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Their response is in defense. They're self-righteous. Give us a sign that you are truly who you say you are. Show us another miracle and then of course we will repent. And there's nothing that points them back to the truth of what God, God's word had said. They are void of love. They are void of love for God first and foremost. And void of love for people. Because listen to verse 17. What was his disciples' response? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal. For your house will consume me. So the Jewish leaders see Jesus doing this. And their response is not to remember the word of God. They don't realize that this is fulfillment of Psalm 69 verse 9. But his disciples, of course, afterwards realized it. Because I'm pretty sure in that moment they must have been perplexed. But in verse 17, it says, The disciples remembered, The zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal 
The Greek is zealous, where we get zealous from. It means to have warmth, a feeling for or against something. To be zealous or to be jealous for someone or something. If you have a, a spouse, it's, there's a healthy jealousy you need, you need to have for your spouse. Like God has a jealousy for us, His people. These spiritual leaders had a lack of zeal, no zeal. They had no passion for God and for His people. Because they could not remember what the zeal of God was all about. It was for His people. And so they let people fall into the trap of everything just made too easy for the sake of generating a consumption-driven religion. It's a well-oiled machine. And so they ask for a sign and Jesus tells them what will be the sign. He is the sign. He himself. He is God incarnate. He is Emmanuel. He is saying to them, I am the sign. By telling them, this temple will be raised in three days. He's saying, I am God. I am the object of your worship. And he's saying to them, but the object of your worship has become this place. Because you see, the nation of Israel and specifically the religious leaders had fallen into the trap of worshipping worship. You can easily fall into the trap of worshipping worship. Worshipping an experience, a gathering, a place, a building. But God is missing. You see, Jesus was actually calling them to say, the worship that he wants those who pledge, who pledge allegiance to him to demonstrate was what he was going to do. What was his worship going to be? Laying his life down for his sheep. He was going to be crucified, carry his cross, die, but be raised from the dead. But we know, of course, that Jesus is saying he is the temple. And we know that Jesus died, was risen from the grave and ascended. So he's not here with us. So if Jesus is not physically with us, what is his temple? What is the house of God now? Well, brothers and sisters, this is where the good news comes in. Us, you, me. We are the house of God. God's plan was for His authority, His Spirit to dwell within us and for us to be the house of God for which there needs to be a zeal, a love, the need for love. The need for his church to be loved. 
And that zeal is supposed to consume His people. The zeal and love for God needs to then flow. I'm going to put up here for you what I believe then should be the actual order. Remember I said in the beginning, there was a needs-driven ministry that led to a consumption-driven religion which led to worship that was void of love. What is the remedy for that? Well, the remedy is the opposite of that. If you could throw it up there, a zeal or a love for His presence. The house of God is representing His presence. When the people of God come together, man, that is where God loves to dwell. This morning during worship, that second song, I was sitting there, I couldn't see the screen. I was like, I just sense God's presence here. Because when we come together in awe of God, with humility, wanting to draw near to Him, He comes. He is here with us. So it needs to start with a love for His presence that leads to us being consumed by the love for His people. And that results in needs being met. Look at that. Does that make sense? It's the opposite of the first three points. The first three points, what they had established was, there's a need. Let's fulfill that need. Oh, now we're doing that the whole time. That's creating consumption. But the people need this. It's a wild world machine. But love grows dim when it becomes a convenience-based religion. But if it's the opposite, if Jesus is our first affection, His presence That will lead us to be consumed, have a zeal for His house. And then the needs of people will be met. I'm going to close off here with a simple application. How much much does it cost us to actually gather together as God's people? How much does it cost us to gather in community groups like, and, and to be with others? And, and do we do that with an expectation of us being able to bring something? That could be a sacrifice. Do we hear God's voice and then come in expectation to contribute? On a Sunday morning gathering, how much does it cost you to arrive here? I was thinking about it this morning. We've been doing this for so long in the evangelical church in the last, I don't know how many years, right? Like before we had projectors, what did we have? We had transparency machines and, and then we had the slides and you would have to have someone up front, you know, move up the, uh, what do you call those, transparencies to see the words. And now we've got screens, we've got everything, the words are up there for us. We don't learn the words anymore. You know, how often do I bring my literal Bible And so we come in, in our day and age, we just pitch up. It's very convenient. Everything is there for us. Don't worry. They will figure it out. Kids rock will happen. There will be someone to look after my kids so that I can just, I just want to get a break. I I understand that. I've got two little toddlers. One baby and a toddler. But you see, there's a need. And so we fulfill that need. And what does it lead to? 
a consumption-driven oiled machine where there's constantly, man, we need to fill gaps. We need to fill gaps. We, we got a need here. This is this. And then we find ourselves worshiping, but love is void. On a personal level, I want to ask you, what do the courts of your heart look like? What kind of trading is happening in your heart? Because whatever is all consuming you in your heart and your mind, it's going to lead to the void of, there's not going to be love. Love will be void. For some reason, I felt I had to wear this shirt today. It makes a statement. If you can't read it, it says, Porn kills love. Because it represents for me a big, there is a big need that few people are actually aware of. Because we are living in a society that are addicted and dependent on an industry that is pumping out material that is creating a false representation of what God had designed to be holy and pleasing in His sight. As a young man, I was caught in that trouble. As a teenager, the first time I was maybe exposed to something like that, I was six years old only. And that manifested even more when I was in high school and in university and at the age of 23, I look at that as my salvation moment, a prodigal moment coming back to Jesus and was set free from that addiction or dependency. But what I was looking for was love. It was a need for love. I was looking for affirmation. And when I didn't get it, I was looking that for it in any other substance. And porn was was one of those areas. And what it led to then, of course, was a life void of love. What is your thing that's maybe leading you to believe that if you are consumed with this, your whole life is only consumed with this one thing, that that is going to fill that void in your heart? Think about that thing because that is a lie. It's a liar. It's lying to you. The only person that can fill that void is God through His Spirit. The Bible says the love of God through His Spirit has been poured into our hearts. Because that is the only way that we can have zeal for His house. If we have the need for love filled by God first and no other dependency. Let's consider that this morning. As I invite the worship team to come up front. And let's listen to what the Holy Spirit puts in our hearts. I'm going to be upfront and honest. There's, there's something new Satan has thrown to me. A weakness that he knew or knows about that is trying to take the zeal that I should have for God and His people.
But by God's grace, I can walk in faith with His people and with God to overcome that, to be set free from it. And that is what He wants to do for you today. So we are going to worship. We're going to respond in song. And then afterwards, we are going to have time because I managed to finish just over 40 minutes. <laughs> but we are going to spend time in twos and threes. Let us spend time to confess our sins to one another. Choose to respond in the way that God wants you to respond. So before we worship, I'll just pray for us. Father, I just thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. Father, we thank you that we can turn to you. We thank you that we can come and ask, come and change our hearts. Because the truth is, Jesus, you took the whip on your back that we should have received for being vendors. And we thank you for that. You took the punishment. The wrath of God was satisfied on you so that we can come freely this morning. And we praise your name for that. Amen.